tonight's guest is one of the best in the business, writing for Wisdom, Crick Info, and many more cricket sites and publications around the world. He's authored books, worked as a commentator and a cricket analyst, made an award-winning film, and produces brilliant content on his YouTube channel and two podcasts, Red Inca and Double Century. Also, according to Wikipedia, he's also provided the cover photo to P. Diddy's album, Last Train to Paris. Uh, Jared Kimber, welcome to the Top Order podcast. Yeah, you probably should have led with that, shouldn't you? Well, yeah, we were, we were going to ask that question. So, um, <laughs> it, it, firstly, is it true that you provided the photo? And, and second, how do the royalties work for that? Is is, is that more lucrative than uh, cricket journalism? It's a very, very weird story. <laughs> I wrote a blog years ago and I went to the Pompidou Centre and I wrote a whole blog about how at the Pompidou Centre I saw a guy wearing an all-blacks jersey and and I was, you know, arty and art. Um, if you will. And uh, I wrote this thing. And then for the photo, I had a photo that I'd taken uh, um, at the Pompidou Centre, which somehow someone showed P. Diddy. And he was just like, that's what I want for my cover. And like, they spent like, oh, they must have spent like three or four months contacting me. And I figured I'd done a, I'd done some sort of copyright infringement on Sony. <laughs> so I just didn't get back to them. And then eventually the A&R woman from Sony like contacts me directly. And I'm like, well, Surely if the A&R person's contacting me, it's not a rights problem here. So she said, look, he wants this photo. And I'm like, look, I only have like the tiny little one that's up on the internet. That's all that's left. I didn't, you know, it was just a happy snap on holiday. And she's like, well, it's going to cost us a lot of money. How about we just give you a bunch of money and then we spend the rest of the money making it so we can use your photo for a billboard. I was like, well, that sounds cool. Why don't you do that? <laughs> yeah. uh, so no, it, look, it worked out all right. But, you know, I don't know how often uh, P. Diddy is going to be trolling the internet looking for photos of the Pompidou Centre uh, with a, with a all black players in the background. But um, sorry, all black jerseys in the background. But um, yeah, it was uh, one of the weirder things that's happened in my career. Awesome. Well, look, we'll move on uh, to cricket. And look, I guess one of the reasons we, we wanted to talk to you, amongst other things, is the amount of New Zealand content you've been producing lately. You'll, you'll tell from my accent, I'm a, an Englishman. I've got an Aussie to my right and the, the one token Kiwi uh, even further to my right. But and there's some great stuff, both written and across your YouTube channels, going back into New Zealand cricketing annals. Um, talk to you know players like Stewie Dempster or about players like Stewie Dempster, John Reid, Richard Collins. What is it about New Zealand cricket or the Black Caps that that have made you dig deeper and and sort of uh, write and produce content about them? I don't think there's anything specific about New Zealand that has made me do that, which might seem weird if, as you said, I don't know how many things I made over the last month or so. Uh, I think what happens is that you get to cover India, England and Australia quite regularly, especially if you're in my job. So I was I was the global writer for ESPN, which basically meant that I could cover a smaller team if they were playing Australia, India or England um, or they're at a World Cup. So if you look at some of my stuff from World Cups, there's heaps of different um, coverage. You know, there's I think I wrote a 7000 word piece on Scotland cricket one time from a World Cup. Uh, there is, you know, Afghanistan pieces and Bangladesh long form pieces. But in a World Cup, you can't just write about one team over and over again. Whereas I knew that New Zealand were going to be playing three tests in England. I was going to be able to cover that. People are going to give me money to cover that happily uh, for me, uh, which meant I could you know, spend a bit of time doing that sort of stuff. And, and what you get with New Zealand is that there is no cricket media in New Zealand. You know, Andrew Alderson is almost a one-man cricket media um, uh, thing at his time. You know, Crick Info and Crick Buzz don't really cover it. And they're the two biggest uh, publishers when it comes around the world. Uh, 
there just aren't that many New Zealand specialist cricket writers. And most of them, even, even the really good ones, don't do it all the time. And I suppose I come in then as someone who has a good understanding of history and also covers the global game. And it's just like, well, this is great. I get to write about all these things that everyone else should have been writing about and hasn't, you know, uh, there's some great old um, New Zealand cricket books obviously out there. Uh, but, you know, uh, contemporary stuff, there's just not a lot really done. So I just sort of went, well, I just, I, I come out of covering uh, India, Australia, England, India, uh, and then the IPL. And so I covered India a bunch of times and I'd cover, I'd covered England quite a lot. And I was like, I'll just do New Zealand and just see what happens. And, you know, recent times, especially uh, I've kind of been a little bit more my own boss, you know, on the YouTube page and, and you know, my blog, even with Crick Info now, I, I just do um, freelance work for them. So I'm not going to offer them anything that I don't want to write. Really. <laughs> so, so, you know, I was in that situation where I was just like, great. And I, I just, I've always found New Zealand cricket very fascinating. The one thing you learn when you do the history of cricket is that if it didn't involve England, almost no one wrote about it. It doesn't exist. And a lot of great New Zealand history is sort of there in the background and in small New Zealand history books or, uh, you know, in one-off blog posts that some random kid has written. And you start to put all these things together. And I think for me, it was just the ability. I knew that whether New Zealand won or lost the World Test Championship, uh, and I did a similar piece for the 2015 World Cup, uh, you know, you sort of know that this is one of the biggest moments in New Zealand cricket. And we tend to look at teams as what we grew up with. So for me, I grew up in the late 80s, 90s, you know, 2000s was kind of my era. And like, you know, you guys all look roughly the same age, if not slightly younger or older than me, depending on how much hair you have. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so we, we're like, oh, New Zealand's a normal team. But if you grew up in the 60s or 70s, I, I read Ram Guha's book recently, and he was just like, oh, Indians patronized New Zealand like you would not believe. And I was like, Really? Because India was shit too. Like, why were they patronizing this? And then you realize there's this hierarchy of even the sort of the teams coming through. And and we don't feel that because we're just like, you know, I remember, you know, Richard Hadley embarrassing, well, trying to embarrass Mike Whitney, um, you know, in a test match. That was one of my first New Zealand memories. Whereas actually, almost everything that happened before 1986, New Zealand were pretty shit or average. Actually, no, they were mostly pretty shit and a little bit average in the 70s and 80s. And you have to realize that when you're writing about them and when they make the World Test Final and then they win it, you have to actually suddenly understand their context. This is, this is they were Bangladesh for 40 years, right? And now they're the best team in the world. And I think that you have to honor that. And I probably got a bit carried away. And I haven't, I haven't covered New Zealand properly since probably, what was it? Was, it, was McCullum's last series 2016 or 2017 in England? Um, mm. That was about the last time. I reckon if you go back to that period, I wrote about 12,000 words on Brendan McCullum in about eight months. So I do go through these periods and go, great, I get to write about someone who's not England, India and Australia and I go a bit nuts. So, uh, yeah, if you go back, I think, you know, I'm quoted in Brendan McCullum's book, although not particularly fondly. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but yeah, so I, you know, I think I have gone through those periods before, but it's a kind of explosion of all these different things that I, I like. And then, you know, New Zealand does have this great sort of, un, I mean, untapped is wrong, but maybe uh, unremembered history. You've answered components of our next question. You're, you're, you're obviously from Australia, but you know cover cricket from a lot of different angles. Do you are you a fan of of one particular team? Do you do you kind of barrack or, or have you got that genuine sort of cricket uh, commentator or journalist sort of you never refer to a team as we? 
<laughs> I certainly don't do that um, unless I'm moaning about Victoria. I, I still support Victoria, to be fair, in the Sheffield Shield. Uh, I remember the first couple of years I wrote in England, everyone was like, who is this guy and how is he this neutral? And then Victoria played in it. Uh, do you remember that? What was it? The Champions League or whatever yeah. they called it? Uh, Victoria played in that and all the same journalists were like, oh, he doesn't care about Australian cricket. It's Victorian cricket he gives a shit about. <laughs> um, uh, which, which is very, very accurate. But uh, no, I, I grew up in a club cricket environment. Um, and so my first heroes were club cricketers. And then from that, I learned cricket through Victoria. And at that stage, there was a huge conspiracy to defraud uh, Victorian cricket by the Australian cricket team, is how we felt about it in Victoria anyway. <laughs> and so I probably didn't really start to support Australia till maybe my mid-teens, which maybe uh, is something else. But at that same point, around 91, 92, when I was about 12, um, I started watching Pakistan cricket. And it was nothing like anything I'd ever seen before. And suddenly I was like, well, Australian cricket's great. And and certainly worth my time, but Pakistani cricket's incredible. Like, you know, Abdul Qadir and Mushtaq Ahmed and Waza Makran and Inzi, all these guys, one after the other. I was like, these are all great uh, cricketers. And then after that, I remember Ben Katapati Raju coming to Australia and bowling, you know, this incredible, you know, drift that I'd never seen a finger spinner in Australia bowl with before. And, you know, you keep, and then Richie Richardson was my favorite batter. And then I used to dress like Martin Crowe when I played. Like I had a helmet and I took the cover off it so it was white. So it would look like Martin Crowe's <laughs> helmet. I used to wear a thigh pad, right? I bought a thigh pad that was the same boxy shape as him, right? <laughs> Just so I could look more like him, despite the fact that, to be fair to me, uh, uh, you know, Marty was a little bit thicker set than I was back in those days. Um, you know, so I, you know, the, the full thing of, you know, the headband and everything, Asai Amwar, um, Ami, uh, you know, Ami Sahail, those sort of guys. I would mimic all them. And so would a lot of my friends. It's just the difference was they would then become rabbit Australian fans. And I probably never quite got to that level. I, I love Australian cricket. And then once you start working in it and you know, David Warner and, you know, you know, Ed Cowan and, you know, um, you know, Ian O'Brien, you, you start to know the players and you start to cheer for individual players anyway, and your friends and, you know, coaches you've had good discussions with and all that sort of stuff. I will say that I started writing about cricket in 2007 and Australia were pretty ordinary a lot of the time after that and lost a lot of ashes, obviously, at that period. So being at the 13-14 ashes, when Australia won, I was actually shocked at how much I enjoyed the win. I remember I stopped writing and I went out on the on the hill at the Wacker and just enjoyed it for an hour and enjoyed the, the players um, yeah, having fun. Probably missed my deadline for Crick Info, but uh, I, I think I'm okay with that now. Um, but uh that was probably one of the few times when that happens but as a general rule i think i like cricket a lot more than i like australian cricket and that as that i had no idea that that would eventually probably be the way that i would make a career because every other cricket writer in the world was writing about their team and how their team interacted with everyone else and i was just like look at what's going on in bangladesh this is shit or you know look at what's going on with new zealand now they could be a really good team here um and you know west indies have got this this player that you should focus on and when i came to england that's how I got my, my break. People were just like, okay, we've got this random Australian who swears a lot when he writes and writes these ridiculous pieces we don't understand, but he seems to know everything about Chris Gale. Do you want to write a Chris Gale piece? Of course I want to write a Chris Gale mm -hmm. piece. Uh, and that's really how it all started. Uh, you know, very lucky that my, for whatever reason, my fandom of cricket is probably above my fandom of the Australian cricket team. I mean, I guess for us growing up, the 1992 World Cup was a real pivotal moment in, in our learning about an understanding of cricket and enjoying of cricket. And it's certainly the, the first 
memory I think I've got of one day cricket watching it growing up. What was that like for you, that 1990 World, 1992 World Cup? You talked about watching Pakistan. That would have been around that era. Um, what did that tournament mean for you growing up and, and how did that shape your view of cricket moving forward as you started to want to write about the game? Yeah, I think I was already obsessed by cricket by that point. Um, I used to... Uh, I used to spend about the last three days of the week of, of the school week coming up with my fielding plans for the, my, I used to captain the school team on Friday and then captain my cricket team on Saturday. And I had different plans for different bowlers, like the full thing. So I wouldn't say that the 92 world cup changed my obsession. Although I will say in 92, 93, I opened the bowling with a off spinner uh, mm. in a game in which my dad almost ripped my head off. And I was like, if Martin Crowe can do it, I'm sure I can get away with it. Apparently, I could not. Uh, uh, my dad wouldn't let me go to any of those games because they were one-day games, and that wasn't real cricket. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I watched everything on TV. But yeah, I think it was just, uh, I think it was opening up. If you look at it really, 92 World Cup, for many people, and not just people of our age, it was probably the, the dawning of the global era of cricket. Uh, up until that point, the 80s was an inc incredible era, but you couldn't watch much of it because it was, you know, we didn't really have cable TV. You'd hear these great stories of Imran Khan reverse swing spells, but it was like a paragraph and a half in your paper from a Wires report. Do you know what I mean? You never really got it. 92, everyone was wearing colours. You had, you know, a multiple teams, you know, Zimbabwe, you know, and South Africa came from nowhere, obviously, from, from, from if you were following cricket in the 80s. Um, Zimbabwe really hadn't been um, a part of it. Sri Lanka, really, that was their sort of beginning as well. I know Zimbabwe and Sri Lanka had played before, but for us, I think they were a new explosion. And most, you know, most of us weren't alive when South Africa last played. Um, and so we had this sort of explosion of these new teams. There was the colours and you, what you got in that 92 World Cup. And we're now just used to it. It doesn't mean anything to us when I'll say this out loud now, but when we watched it at the time, it was the first time you could watch nine different playing styles, mm. right? We didn't really have that. You know, Kerry Packer's series sort of flirted with that, didn't they? Three or four different styles. But if you think back to the 92 World Cup, England played one specific type. South Africa had their own specific type. New Zealand were innovating everywhere. Uh, you know, you, you know, Pakistan and the middle overs, you had all these different sort of styles coming together. And so people were really starting to understand one day cricket and you could really follow it from a different point. So, um, I think for me, it was the ability to watch all these teams and it probably matched the obsession I already had with cricket and gave and, and allowed me to understand a little bit more about Azaruddin and Inzi and Edo Brandes and all the, all the greats. And, and look, taking it back to New Zealand a little bit now, you, on one of your recent chats, uh, I think you had chat with uh, Peter McGlashan on your, on your Red Inca podcast. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, uh, you know, your essential, you, you said something to the effect of like ordinarily when changes like the, stru the structure of New Zealand cricket, ordinarily when those changes are successful, teams around the world kind of look at those and go, you know, now what, what can we implement? But then you said, oh, well, but probably they won't because it's New Zealand and they'll just write it off as a fluke. Th there's a lot we can unpack about that and we, we might do a little bit about that later, but I'm probably more most interested in, you know, as an outsider, I guess, what you think the specific things that teams can learn from what New Zealand have done over the last five, six years and kind of improve their cricket. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to that comment, I had a conversation with someone who, you know, works quite high up for a cricket team uh, during the series. And they were like, oh, sorry, during that test. And they were like, New Zealand's going to win this. And I said, I think so. And they said, um, what will this change about world cricket? 
And I went, do you mean, will teams copy New Zealand now that they've done everything right? Mm. And he said, yes. I said, no. He goes, yeah, that's what I think too. <laughs> so there's, a, there's certainly a prevailing thought amongst some of us that New Zealand got a, right, a lot right and it won't mean anything, mm. um, sadly. Uh, I think if you, oh, it's probably not as, an I don't know if you guys are football fans, but it's probably not as an extravagant thing as what happened with Iceland uh, in football. When Iceland happened in football, I remember talking to some people, uh, you know, who worked for some of the smaller cricket countries, not New Zealand, but some of the other smaller cricket countries. Uh, and I said to them, you guys should be sending over everyone you can to, New Ze uh, to Iceland right now to find out how they did this. How did they take 12 people on an island and end up being so good at football in a sport that 200 um, countries play, right? And, and I think that that's what I probably would have been doing um, over the last maybe a couple of years with New Zealand. If you were really developed, if you were working for the West Indies or South Africa or even England or Australia or, or India, it would have been worth sending someone over and just poking your nose around and being like, okay, how did this happen? And, and for Eng if you look at English cricket specifically, England cricket is actually far more professionally run than New Zealand cricket. They've got a lot of thinkers and all these different people, but essentially they still have a bloke who's 104 years old called Darren Stevens, who bowls at about 40 miles an hour taking seam wickets, right? Uh, which tells you, and a lot of seam wickets, no disrespect to Darren Stevens, who's an absolute baller, but you know, uh, there's a certain point where it's like, how are you preparing people for test cricket if Darren Stevens is bowling 64 miles an hour, little wobblers, and no one can hit him because of your pitches, right? There has to be, that is not, you don't face those bowlers in test cricket. And what New Zealand did by changing their pitches was a huge change with that. What New Zealand did by implementing a, a, they were looking for types of cricketer. Okay, we need this type of cricketer now. We need this type of cricketer now. We need a, we need a first change bowler. I, I know this sounds weird. Until very recently, I don't think teams ever thought to themselves what a, the difference was between an opening bowler and a first change bowler, which means almost every cricket team around the world had a bowler. Uh, had their, their, if they had three seamers, they were all opening bowlers, mm. right? Which makes no sense because you need someone for those middle overs. Look at New Zealand going, do you know what we need? We need someone who can do something in the middle overs. And Neil Wagner is burst out of i don't know craig mcmillan's mind and uh, you know mike hessen's butthole or wh however that <laughs> happens probably not the greatest image for you guys there but uh you know these sorts of little things that happen and there's heaps of them as you said in that me and peter mcglashan talked about it for about 45 minutes there's so many little things that new zealand got right that if you were if you were trying to fix the culture of Sri Lankan cricket at the moment, or Pakistan cricket, or West Indies cricket, or even the bigger countries, how you get even better, you go back and you have a look at this. There's a lot of luck that went right with New Zealand actually winning the World Test Championship, but there's not a lot of luck that went right in them playing a lot of good cricket for a long time and playing in two successive World Cup finals and now playing in the World Test Championship final. That's not luck. Winning the World Test Championship might have been luck, but everything else to get them to, you know, to win consistently, that has come from a lot of good decisions from for a long time. And Brendan McCullum will get a lot of credit for bringing everyone together. But it isn't Brendan McCullum. It's pitches. It's New Zealand A. It's Mike Hessen. It's, um, uh, you know, uh, Gary Stead. All these little things that have happened in New Zealand cricket. And I think that that's what the other teams should be looking at. And they probably won't. They'll probably just go, oh, look, Washington Sundar hadn't played any first-class cricket and he did well against Australia. Let's try out our 19-year-old um, <laughs> T20 stars and see if they do the same. It's funny because, yeah, when you, you talk about that stuff, uh, you know, even the pitches, like, yeah, I remember, you know, even just club cricket, club cricket back, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago when I, you know, started to play. And yeah, you're absolutely right that all the leading wicket takers in club cricket in New Zealand used to be little dirty seamers that would take. And and the, the quick bowlers, you know, um, I played against, you know, some of the 
Canterbury guys, Shane Bond and stuff would come in and play, and he'd just bowl that fourth stump line, and it, it didn't get any wickets, you know. And, and it's it's sort of ridiculous that that can even happen, and um, all of that stuff. And it's interesting now, you, you know, you've, you've given an enormous amount of praise for for the Black Caps players in, in your recent work, but um, I, I'd be really interested to know where you see them actually sitting in the Test kind of or international rankings, I guess, because you look at the ICC rankings, you might even think that they're the best in the world. Because they're ranked first in uh, ODIs, first in, in tests now, third I think in, in T20s. As a, a biased fan, I'll, I'll definitely take that. But I, I think, you know, realistically, where do you think they actually sit in current international cricket? Yeah. Well, firstly, I think Little Dirty Seamus should be the name of your cover band for three of you <laughs> if you ever get together. But um, look, I think I think it is probably still a marginally better team. Uh, they they tr- they're going to travel a lot better than than New Zealand just because that bowling attack. I mean, they have the most all round bowling attack. Perhaps, uh, I mean, we have to go back a long time to find a better all round bowling attack than mm. than them, where they can bowl on any particular um, surface and be uh, have everyone in danger. Plus, they have five bowling options when they're playing their full strength team. So, uh, I think they're slightly better. But yeah, New Zealand's right there. Um, I don't put too much um, attention on the ICC rankings because yeah. the ICC algorithms are not particularly good. But, you know, if you've made the last two World Cup finals, you're a very, very good uh, T20 player and you've made the World Test Championship and won it. Uh, you know, I think you, you there's absolutely no reason to believe that they're not um, right up there with India. I just think that India can probably win home and away um, in one-day cricket and test cricket more regularly than, than New Zealand. But... <laughs> We don't even know how much news, how much money uh, Indian cricket has. Like, I'm, I'm not shitting you. They don't, they don't re- release their numbers. We're talking about they have probably, they probably have earned and will earn somewhere around ten billion dollars, right? It's you can't compare that to New Zealand cricket. Mm. Uh, I know that um, uh, my friend Barrett wrote a piece for Cricket uh, Cricket and Fogo. Oh, they, uh, sorry for Crickbuzz saying the, the the myth of the underdogs with New Zealand and how we built them up, but. And one of the things that he always says is, you know, New Zealanders have much more access to cricket grounds and cricket facilities than people do in India. But cricket is such a skill dependent thing that all you really need is a a bat, a ball and an alleyway to get good at it. And, you know, there are there are more people (laughs) there are more people on Indian trains at the moment than live in New Zealand. Uh, So the fact that you can even get to a point where you can compare uh, those two um, places and we've never had a superpower in the way that we do uh, India right at the moment they haven't they haven't even unlocked their entire country in, New, in in India and so for New Zealand to even be anywhere near that level I think is a phenomenal effort considering uh, you know the fact that we all know that uh, New Zealand cricket is not even the you know the biggest sport in the country itself so I think India probably have them slightly pegged, but I'd love to see, you know, five test series in India um, coming to New Zealand for five tests and then the uh, the same, uh, you know, New Zealand going to India as well um, and doing the same thing and a bunch of ODIs. But my guess is that India would probably edge those series just because they have the uh, more, I mean, basically New Zealand, everything I've said is uh, positive about New Zealand, except for the fact that there's no real world-class spinner there. And that's where the difference is between the the top level team, I think. And it, I mean, it's funny because when you were talking uh, right at the start about New Zealand and sort of, com- you know, almost comparing New Zealand to Bangladesh, and uh, if I, when you said that, I sort of flicked in my head, oh, that seems like an insult. But actually, like, it's actually correct. I mean, you're, you're not wrong. And, and thinking about all that history, it's, um, 
Yeah, it's actually stunning that the amount, the rise. I guess I'm fortunate, I suppose, in in my time. Even just thinking back to, you know, when I first started supporting cricket, them winning a game was actually a big deal. And now you're kind of expecting them to win almost all their games at home and, and quite a lot away. Let let's um, dive into to some of the the players because you've written a, a lot about particular players recently, and, and Jameson is is one that you've talked about. And I mean, you know, everyone's been writing about just what an incredible start to his career. But sort of the stuff that I thought was quite interesting that you dived into was about tall bowlers and, and what is it that makes them such a, a proposition? And I guess what is it about Jameson that makes him, you know, right at the top of that pile? Yeah, I, I don't know if you guys, uh, you know, play a lot of cricket, but when you face a bowler who's taller, there is an actual physical adjustment in that you have to look slightly higher. And I know that sounds silly, but it is actually... For a club cricketer, it's not as big a deal because our brains aren't hardwired to what bowling is. But if you're a test bowler, you're expecting the ball to come out at roughly a two-meter height, which is why Lassif Malinga was such a problem, right? Because his balls were coming out, I can't remember his height, but maybe 1.7 or 1.6 meters. You are expecting the ball to come out roughly at that two-meter point. He's at 2.3 meters. That 30 centimeters is a big adjustment if not that many other players are doing it. So straight away, you've got that. Then you've got the fact that the ball is also going to bounce higher off a length, right? So tall bowlers generally get this uh, tennis ball bounce. Now, where the advantage in facing tall bowlers is, and uh, Steve Harmison and and Kevin Peterson did a brilliant thing for us on TalkSport last summer where Kevin Peterson said anytime a tall bowler overpitched, he would just go for them because they tend to float because the ball doesn't, uh, it doesn't have the normal path of, of a bowler who's shorter. So the minute he sees an, a tall bowler pitch up, you just ping it down the ground. Uh, now, and if you, you could do that with Steve Harmison and you could do that with Mornay Morkel and lots of different uh, bowlers. You can't do that with Carl Jameson because he swings the ball. And not only does he swing the ball, he swings the ball in both directions. Most tall bowlers don't swing the ball unless they bowl really slow. So if you're facing uh, Jason Holder, who bowls at about, what, 78 miles an hour, if you're swinging the ball, if, you're, if he's bowling full and he's floating the ball a little bit and it's swinging, you wait. And you just wait a little bit later. And as the ball starts to swing, you play with the swing. Carl Jameson's at, what, 86, 87, 88 miles an hour? You can't actually wait in that same way for him. That extra eight miles an hour is absolutely massive. So he now... it's harder to pick him up out of the hand than a normal bowler. The bounce is going to give you a problem. He can swing the ball both ways. And he's also, you don't get that many guys who are genuinely tall and genuinely quick, right? That isn't a a very normal combination. I always say that the Australian Billy Stanlake should be the best bowler in the world. He just can't land the ball where he needs to land it because basically he's, I don't know, six foot 10 and bowls 95 miles an hour. That should be impossible. You should never be able to face that bowling, right? But uh, Mornay Morkel, almost every cricketer I talked to in the world, so Mornay Morkel was the toughest bowler to face um, uh, in his period. He wasn't the best bowler. He wasn't even the best bowler in his attack, right? But he was the toughest bowler to face because he was quick and he was tall. Well, Carl Jameson's almost the same speed. Um, He's taller than Mornay Morkel. He releases the ball from, I think, slightly higher than Mornay Morkel, and he swings it both ways. I mean, good luck. I don't know how you face that. We've never had a combination of bowler. Like Joel Garner wasn't a swing bowler. Joel Garner was brilliant and ended up with a test bowling average. Of, I don't know, about 20 and a half, right? Uh, and was, wasn't as tall as Carl Jameson um, and couldn't swing the ball. So when you start factoring in all those different things, tall bowlers aren't supposed to be fast and swing the ball at the same time. And he could also move the ball off the seam. 
uh, that combination is so rare. And sure, he's going to go to India and he's not going to take his wickets at 14 anymore. But um, essentially, for eight tests, he's averaged 14. And if you can show me a bunch of other bowlers who've done that in their first eight tests, even when they played at home, I would like to meet them. Jared, you've articulated that brilliantly. Um, we're going to give you a challenge, though, because you've got to articulate Neil Wagner now. So Carl Jameson, <laughs> six foot eight, um, does all the right things, swings it both ways. But Neil Wagner, short, everybody knows what his plan is, and he's been tremendously successful. How's, how's he done that? Yeah, I, again, yeah, you, you have to understand, and we're only just starting to work this out in cricket. If, you, if you're a professional batter, right? And you play, and you play cricket, uh, especially. Let's say you play cricket in the West. I'll take Asia out of this for a minute. Seventy percent of the balls that you are facing in your life are from right arm seam bowlers, right? When they wang the ball down with you with those dog throwing things, again, it's usually a right arm bowling coach, right? And again, it's usually right arm medium pace, right arm medium fast, right arm fast medium. There's no way that you can be good at professional cricket as a batter without being really good against right arm seam bowling you don't face a lot of left arm seam bowling uh until you make the international level you face a little bit at the first class level and that's usually the first time you've really come up against it and then suddenly at the international level the t20 level it's everywhere right Mm -hmm. and that's because almost every left arm um seam bowler in the world who's over 78 miles an hour is professional cricketer right because it is so rare to, to do that. You don't need to be particularly talented. I don't know if you guys remember Rahat Ali. Rahat Ali didn't really know what he was doing most of the time, right? Had no idea what he was doing, but because he could bowl 80 to 85 miles an hour left arm seam, he ended up as a test player, right? And we've all seen it. Av- very average left arm bowlers with, with very limited skills uh, be incredibly successful. So you then get someone like Neil Wagner comes along, right? Bowls left arm. Now, <laughs> He doesn't bowl it like other people. Most left-arm bowlers bowl in a very, very simple way. Uh, think Chaminda Vass, like on, on this big loop. So Chaminda Vass, Alan Davison, um, you know, those sorts of guys, they basically bowl these big curving and swingers. They try and hit your pad. Uh, they try and get a couple of bowls. And then later in the innings, they'll try and slant across a couple across you. Well, Neil Wagner likes to hit the pitch, which is not what left-arm bowlers traditionally do. Then somewhere along the line, uh, I've heard this comes from Craig McMillan, but I haven't been able to uh, uh, work it out. So if you guys get Craig McMillan in, um, on, Craig, do you remember Craig McMillan used to bowl a lot of shit bounces? Yeah. Right? Like a lot <laughs> of shit, medium yeah. pace bounces. And he got Him a lot and of Steve Waugh were like just bouncing people for absolutely no reason, right? And they were successful at that. Mm. Um, and I, I have this feeling that Craig McMillan or someone has said to, uh, has said to Neil <laughs> Wagner, look, these pitches are flat now, right? And when you bowled your fast spell, why don't you just come back and bowl a lot of short stuff? And I would sh- assume three things came together. One is the fact that he's a left armer bowling a lot of short stuff. And if you think back to Mitchell Johnson, what that did to cricket absolutely changed everything. I remember talking to Graham Swan about it. And I said, was he the fastest you faced? And he said, he wasn't even close to the fastest we faced. He was the fastest left armer we'd faced mm. and he's bowling at our bodies. And all of our trigger movements were for right arm fast bowlers. And suddenly we couldn't get out of the way of it. And we all looked like idiots, right? And Neil Wagner is not as fast, but it's the same thing. Every batter in the world, be left-handed, right-handed, has all their trigger movements for fast bowling comes from facing right-arm bowlers, right? Now you're facing a left-armer who doesn't do it for two-over spells, who can do it for 10 overs. 
He's literally willing to put out seven guys on the leg side and just be like, I don't care how ugly this looks. I'm going to bowl 10 overs of bounces. Uh, I don't know if any of you are fast bowlers, but most fast bowlers will tell you that two overs of bounces is the worst moment of their life. For him to be able to do a 10 over spell of that, and the only other bowler in the world who consistently bowls 10 over spells in the same period as Neil Wagner is Jimmy Anderson bowling his little in-swing and out-swing, right? So the ability to be able to do what Neil Wagner does for long periods of time is incredible. And then the other thing is that I think we're starting to work this out and Wagner worked it out in test cricket. But if you go back to the 2019 World Cup, look at the middle overs. Everyone bowled bounces because there is a huge risk and reward in bounces. And I think we've always known it intrinsically that there was a risk and reward in it. But what we don't do is consistently bowl them. And it's very hard to bowl between the nipples and the Adam's apple, right? That, that is a hard length to be able to hit because who practices that length in the nets, right? You, you practice a good length at the top of our stump. You might practice a back, of a, a back of a length or a slightly fuller length. To be able to consistently hit the nipple to throat length is actually quite a tough thing. And I think that Wagner has the ability to do that for 10 overs with the left arm and also be prepared to get wickets ugly. You know, there's that thing we can go back to, uh, to basketball. You know, uh, Ben Simmons basically got laughed out of the NBA uh, finals this year because he can't shoot three throws. It's like, why don't you just shoot underarm? Like, if you shot underarm, your free throw percentage would go up. Everyone in the world knows it's easier to shoot a, a three throw underarm because you can get more backspin on the ball. You can control the ball better, right? And yet we've seen Shaquille O'Neal, Wilt Chamberlain, now Ben Simmons, Giannis Antetokounmpo. They're all fucking up their careers by not doing the ugly thing that will help them because players don't want to do that. Well, Neil Wagner, if you're willing to bowl 10 overs of bounces, you are willing to do the ugly thing. And that is what he's willing to do. And it's the same if you want to go back to someone like Steve Waugh, you know, in the 90s, you were seen as, uh, uh, you know, uh, you weren't seen as masculine if you took the ball on the body. You had to hook and pull, right? And then Steve was like, I'm just going to take everything on the body. They're just going to hit me a lot. That's what they're going to do. And players quite often aren't willing to do that because there's ego involved, you know, all these sorts of things. And so Neil Wagner plays on all that. He plays on the fact that these guys don't want to just do the hard work. If, you, if you're willing to be hit, um, on the body for 10 straight overs. He can't get you out. No one wants to do that. And, and look, um, and you talked quite a bit about plans and stuff in there with Wagner. Uh, we um, we just had Tim Southey on as well just before this, and um, I was talking to him about bowling plans. And Because to me, when I watched like the last six months or so, it feels like New Zealand, those plans all seem to be working. And I kind of wanted to ask him like whether they're actually got better plans now or or we're just starting to notice them because they're actually working and i know uh, he kind of gave us a, a a pretty stock standard answer saying that they they do work on plans and all that kind of stuff but i'm i'm interested in you your point of view and the fact that you were an analyst for for teams and things like are, do you think we are actually now seeing more plans and and that they are now coming off more because of that or or are we just actually am i just noticing it now more no, no. I mean, the, the global average against um, seam bowling has dropped by four runs, five mm. runs or something over the last, uh, since 2018. And that comes from everyone basically trusting their analysts for the first time. So before this, you know, you had a video analyst and you, you spent a bit of time with them and you might get a player like someone like Ian O'Brien, um, who would spend a lot of time sort of, you know, uh, really focusing on plans. But a lot of bowlers just went, well, this is my best ball and this is where I'm going to bowl. Mm. If you say that now, and you don't take wickets, the captain, the ball and coach, the coach, the analyst are all going to hold you into a room and just be like, but we had a plan for this guy. Like, 
you know, it, that was quite simple. You, you, were, you were in the meeting. You know, and I, as an analyst, I've been in a, I've been in those meetings where we've had a really clear plan, and then the bowler's done something opposite, and you know the coach and the captain, and you have to go in the room with him and go. I mean, we had a plan. You were part of the planning committee for this, and it's, and and it's a lot. I think beforehand, especially when the analysts were easily sidelined, I think at that point you you sort of half listened to them. Um, and I think that this isn't just a New Zealand thing, but if you look at New Zealand's bowling attack specifically. You know, Tim Southey for a long time basically just bowled outswingers, right? And now he he's obviously listening to analysts, but he's also developed his skills. The wobble seam is a huge part of why he is so successful now. He can, you know, he's much better at bowling straight and occasionally even, you know, bringing the ball back in. Uh, you look at uh, Neil Wagner. He can't. Neil Wagner can't do what he does unless he spent a lot of time working on plans. Even if he's just worked on his specific plan, he has to know which batter will, this will work to and and how to do these things. Also, Neil Wagner has now got an in swinger, right? So he's obviously spending a lot of time developing his game. Kyle Jamieson, um, on top of being a very skillful bowler, clearly is he's bowling the best ball for each batter, not the best ball that he can bowl. Because if previously he would have just bowled slightly back of a length just outside off stump, nipping the ball away all day. And now he's just like, no, well, this, to this guy, I'm going to go fuller and bring the ball back in. I think that if you look at the New Zealand, uh, New Zealand bowling attack, if you look at the West Indian bowling attack, if you look at the South African bowling attack, all these bowling attacks are doing this, right? And you need the, you need the bowlers to be able to do this, but this is the first generation of bowlers. Like Tim Southey is probably the first, Tim Southey, Jim, Jimmy Anderson, um, and maybe the first sort of guys who have had... Fr- proper analysts for 10 years you know that so they are analyst driven bowlers even if they're and they're geniuses on their own what an analyst really does is allow for tim southey and jimmy anderson to talk and just you get them into a room i remember saying this to a, you know a star player one day and he said well, you know what can you tell me that that i don't already know i said it's not what i can tell you that that you don't already know it's allowing you to say it out loud so you're thinking about it Right, and you're, you've got a supercomputer in your brain, and you're only bringing this stuff out when you absolutely need it, and a lot of it you only bring out subconsciously. What we want to be able to do is to bring it out consciously, so that when you come off at lunch, I go, "Oh, did you think about doing this?" And you're like, "It's your idea. All I'm doing is bringing it back to you." And I think that the ability to do that and those sorts of conversations, we just had this sort of, uh, and a, a similar things happen in baseball as well, although also because they were um, throwing with. Um, you know, glue on their fingers, but <laughs> a similar thing has happened with baseball where uh, the batters in baseball, are just all, st- we're all struggling at the same time because the pitchers have evolved to be uh, basically able to take the best technology and the best training and the best analysis and put that together with being really fast. I mean, <laughs> bowling is so much faster now. Like we think of Tim Southey as like what a medium fast, maybe a fast medium bowler, you know, and he bowls what 83, 84 miles an hour. That was in the late seventies, that would have had him in the top fifteen um, quickest international bowlers, right? And now, imagine having the fastest bowlers in the world, and having Tim Southey turn up. You, you think you think he was there on a tourist visa? <laughs> so things have changed so much, and and you know, and and that's essentially what the situation that we're currently in. Uh, that you're matching up all these things, and I think specifically in New Zealand's case, you've got smart bowlers. You know, a really good um, off-field uh, start. And I don't know the an- analysts there, but just watching what the team does on the field, I just think that they're, they're really good. Um, and then and then you have, uh, you know, this sort of culmination of everyone getting better. Um, you know, four years ago, if, if a left-hander came in and you bowled around the wicket to them, uh, everyone was like, 
why is he doing this? And the exact same thing happens now. Um, and everyone's like, oh, that's because so-and-so has a weakness when you come around the wicket. We just know so much more about uh, uh, batters now. And eventually we will start to work out how to help um, batters. But at the moment, almost all the advancements that we've had in coaching and analysis and, and skills have all helped the bowlers. Uh, it, you know, the we cannot underestimate how much the wobble seam has changed almost everything in world cricket. I guess a follow-up on that in terms of the, the difference in the what an analyst brings to the longer format of the game versus the shorter format. Uh, a lot spoken about, you know, Nathan Lehman hanging, you know, messages out to, to Owen Morgan, um, you know, and that's probably one of the, the better known stories because it's about England, obviously. But how, how does that change in terms of how is, you know, is Jimmy Anderson going out and trying to bowl his best ball and then he'll revert to a plan or is he going out first with a with a particular plan that's been derived by him and the analyst? How does that change across the formats? So I think that, uh, well, if you go with test cricket, there's a bunch of different things that you're trying to do, right? That one of the first things that you want to do is you want to be able to see what the pitch is reacting to. There is a, usually a better length on a pitch, you know, that is a natural thing. So, uh, you know, there will be pitches where you want to be back of the length because the ball is stopping a little bit more. Or there'll be pitches where you want to be back in the length because you're hitting the seam and you're moving a little bit sideways, right? So the analyst is going to be looking at that. The bowler is going to be trying to bowl their best ball, but they're also going to have a plan for each individual batter. So, uh, you know, um, Jimmy Anderson might want to bowl uh, big hooping and swingers uh, to a left-hander. But if, if all the data that England has says that this guy just, he has perfect balance, you bowl that ball in the stumps, you're going to be picking up from the square leg boundary all day. Jimmy Anderson's not going to bowl that ball anymore and he's going to try something else. And so there's a real mix between what a bowler can do, what the pitch is telling you, um, and then what the batter is. And I think that's what test bowling is, right? Essentially, those three things sort of coming together. T20 is a completely different um, thing. You're trying to bowl almost exclusively what the batter doesn't like. And that is because uh, you don't have time to bowl your best ball and have it hit for six, right? You have to make you have to make put the batter in the worst possible situation, and then you're trying to second second guess and bluff the batter a little bit as well. But essentially, that is what you were doing in in Test cricket. You, uh, sorry, in T20 cricket. And so then you're looking at individual plans, and that can be um, those plans change. So how you bowl to Chris, well, Chris Gale is not a good example, but how you bowl to Mark Chapman is completely different in the power play than the middle than the death. Right. And so it's very hard for a bowler to keep all those plans or a captain to keep all those plans in their head. And that's where the Nathan Lehman's thing sort of comes in. Whereas a test match player, you actually shouldn't, it's very rare that you will massively change how you bowl to them. Uh, what you will do in test match cricket is uh, the pitch and the conditions will dictate a little bit more uh, because the, the ball is in charge. Whereas in white ball cricket, the ball's not in charge. Right. So in T20 cricket, the only thing you might get is you might get a message from off the ground going, we need to bowl um, more slower balls because the pitch is gripping more. That would be the only thing you might get from off the ground. And everything else will be specific plans for batters. Whereas in test cricket, it's a real give and take all the time of, of, of what is going on. Um, uh, you know, and it's the, the, the role that you have with analysis in test cricket is far, far different as well. You can give live feedback in a way in T20 cricket. It's like... It's a, like, essentially, it's almost impossible to tell anyone other than the next batter going in some tips, 
in T20 cricket. Uh, uh, realistically, you do most of your analysis work at lunchtime uh, when you're running around or at lunchtime, the 20 minute break or the eight minute break because of overreads. Um, going around, <laughs> first, you know, you go around to a couple of people and go, I saw this, I saw this, and I saw this. And then they ask you a follow up and you're like, I don't have time. I got to talk to four other guys. Um, so it's a completely different relationship to what you would have in test cricket where there's a lot more time and a lot more discussion. So just going back to that World Test Championship for a second, obviously this cycle had a lot of challenges, COVID, changes to the rules, changes to the scoring system. We've tweaked it and we've made some changes going forward. What are your thoughts on the on the changes that we've made to the to the World Test Championship? And do you think that the World Test Championship as a concept has been good for the game of cricket and the game of test cricket? Yeah, I mean... We're on our third point system and we haven't started our second season yet, which... <laughs> Uh, I suppose tells you a lot about what the World Test Championship is. Look, essentially, the World Test Championship is if you and all your neighbours had like a bunch of different agreements on how you should cut your um, uh, your lawn, and then uh, the council came to you and said, "All right, uh, we now need to have a uniform um, set up." And you're like, well, but Bill, Bill wants to do it a crossway, and you know, and Jasmine, Jasmine likes the long lines. And, and the council's like, okay, well, let's come up with a system then that allows Jasmine, Bill, and you to all have your own individual thing uh, of, your, of, of the lawn cutting, but we'll call it, we'll call it the council's plan. And you're just like, well, but it, it's just a bunch of individual decisions, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bunch of individual decisions, but we're going to say it's our plan. That's essentially what the World Test Championship is. It's a bunch of bilateral agree- agreements where the ICC is like, let's call it a league. And realistically the only thing that can really help cricket going forward uh, well especially international cricket going forward would be a proper league structure where uh, the ICC ran test cricket uh, and we had a proper league probably over four years because I'm not sure we can manage to do it over two years as uh, New Zealand's uh, you know schedule in the last world t20 showed and Pakistan's schedule in the next world t20 is hilariously fun for them um, and, and then and then you've got South Africa who might as well not enter no matter how good South Africa are playing they aren't making the final right mm-hmm. so so you have this you have this um, incredibly flawed system what we should do is scrap it from the beginning scrap the bilateral system uh, if any teams want to have a bilateral series um, outside the World Test Championship, they are more than um, um, more, you know, more than uh, able to. But we, we start with starting from scratch and going, okay, this is how we do it: home away, home away, home away. Make sure we all play the same amount of games. England are playing twenty-two tests in the World Test Championship. Uh, Bangladesh are playing twelve. That's not a league. That's as I said, someone's front yard. That's in Bangladesh's case. That's someone's front yard where they've left all their rubbish out and the council refused to take it away. So. So you've got this, you know, you've got this ridiculous situation. So what you need to do is actually make it a league rather than calling it a championship or a league, make it a league. And you go and sell it to the biggest TV company. So Sony, um, uh, ESPN, Star, Z, whoever, right? You go to these companies and you say, here's our league. These are the test matches. Not only that, here's the men's league and here's the women's league, right? And we're going to have promotion and relegation. We're going to have seven teams in, in division one. We're going to have seven teams in division two. Two teams can go up, two teams can go down, but you can also play off so that you don't go up or down as well if you want. All the players and all the officials and all the match um, uh, hosting costs get paid out of the central pot, right? Which will be billions because it's a huge, huge thing. And it's got India and it's got Australia and it's got England. It's got women's cricket. It's got everything, right? We know all this is going ahead. We pay that out of that. 
then everyone else gets a slice of, of the individual fees. And on top of that, you can get individual broadcasting uh, rights and uh, sponsorship rights. So the richest teams will still be way richer than everyone else. But it means that Kyle Jamieson will be paid, I don't know, 250 grand a year to be a test match cricketer in New Zealand. And David Warner will be paid the exact same amount. If Cricket Australia want to pay him more on top of that, that's fine. But we don't have to worry about Kyle Jamieson pissing off to the uh, Bangladesh Premier League anymore, right? Because he's now getting paid a very, very good wage to play test cricket, as are the Zimbabwean players and everyone else. That is how you fix the World Test Championship. That is the only way to fix the World Test Championship. And it won't happen because when the smaller teams had the option to do something like this, they shit themselves because they thought they might get relegated and they wouldn't be useful. Uh, they wouldn't be useful to anyone anymore. And it's like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to be relegated in world sport. You're not supposed to stay as a test playing nation at the top level because some bloke in 1930 in a boardroom went, oh, I think New Zealand are lovely now. New Zealand is supposed to constantly earn that. You know, you, we, don't, we don't let a good marathon country from um, 1896 still um, have all their uh, runners in the marathon without them qualifying. They still have to qualify. They still have to beat a time. They still have to actually make it to, to get into the marathon. And in test cricket, we've just gone, do you know what, South Africa? We, we, get, we gave you a status team, 1890, and you can just have it. You can just stay in the top level of test cricket forever. That's not how sport should ever have worked. And it only was allowed to do that because of how poorly cricket was run. We now have the ability to have divisions. We now have the ability to sell it as a whole, to actually safeguard the game going forward. It would improve it for the smaller nations, but also it would just make test cricket make more sense that what the world test championship is trying to do is trying to make sense of something that was purposely nonsensical. Um, and it's fun and it's great, but it's, you know, it very rarely, it, very rarely are we going to see the two best teams in the final. Um, and very rarely are we going to see, you know, a good final. I mean, we, we play test series as series and then for the final, we're like, we're just going to have one game, see what happens. You obviously made um, the documentary Death of a Gentleman, what, six years or so ago now. When, when you reflect on that, how much of that has, has come to pass and, and where do you think cricket administrations are at the ICC level compared to then? Uh, so at that stage, we had three boards, well, two boards really trying to take over the game for their own personal interests, uh, England and India. Australia was sort of tacking themselves on, but to be fair, their chairman was a bit of a buffoon. Um, uh, but, but the other two chairmen were like, oh, we could take over cricket here. Let's do it. And they very nearly did, to be fair to them. Uh, what we have now is almost like a, va a power vacuum. And so the last ICC CEO was brought in to make as much money for the ICC as possible so that the ICC was for the first time ever powerful. Uh, and what that meant was that they basically completely ruined associate cricket, um, heaps of uh, incredible things that associate teams have. So associate teams, when I worked for Scotland, we had access to all the video in the world that the top teams had because the ICC paid for it because Scotland can't afford that. Um, all those sorts of things have uh, disappeared, as have the um, the people like um, Bob Warmer and a guy called Richard Doan from Australia basically was the coach of all the associate teams for years. Uh, that was inverted commas, forgot we're not on video. But um, <laughs> Richard Doan basically ran around the world going, oh, Australia's doing this, Papua New Guinea, have you thought about doing this? And Ireland, you guys are you guys have got these kinds of pitches. New Zealand are trying this. Why don't you try this? And associate cricket went from shit to incredible. I mean, the level of cricket from the top 20 teams now, the, the 20th best team now is still a good cricket unit. You know, you look at a team like someone like Kenya, um, they're a really good team now. Uh, and, you know, 40 years ago, the 20th team, uh, you, you roll them with, with a club side, right? So 
uh, things have massively changed, but there is a big power vacuum within cricket at the moment. And generally when power, when there's a power vacuum, that's usually filled by the worst possible people, isn't it? It's, it's, never, it's never a person with good intentions that goes, oh, there's a power vacuum there. I must go over there and, and organize this thing better. It's you know usually a guy going, oh, I can make some money on kickbacks here, or I can make it better for my country or whatever they want to do. That's where we are at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of great ideas that the ICC have. But essentially what happens is the ICC has all these great ideas and then everything gets, uh, everything ends up with 75 year old chairman who started off as chairman of their local cricket club. Then they became chairman of their local cricket board. Then they became chairman of their first class team. And then they became chairman of the national team. And by the time they get there, they don't know what the internet is. Um, so like, they're so far behind and they're so backwards that they, they can't see this. I mean, my, fa my favorite ever story about the ICC chairman, so the chairman of all the cricket teams, was in 1996, Crick Info was the biggest website in the world. And the people who created it offered it to the ICC for free. Mm. And they went, oh, we don't want to be involved with fans. Uh, and, you know, Crick Info currently has 30, 30 million, 40 million users. Uh, and, you know, it's probably the biggest, uh, well, if, if cricket, cricket info and cricket buzz are probably the two biggest single sport independent websites in the world. Right. Mm. And I think he could have owned it and done anything that they wanted with it. And they don't, that's where cricket goes wrong. It, it has a real lack of vision because the sort of people who make the decisions are already out of touch by the time they get there and they don't move with the times. And, uh, you know, we get these sort of, we get something like the world test championship, which is, you know, a bandaid over a, a gaping wound. Uh, which I suppose is better than not having a band-aid. And look, you, you, um, I, I loved your idea for the World Test Championship. Where, where would that leave, uh, like the other forms of the game, like the T Twenty and, and ODI? Where, where would you see them fitting into that? Uh, I would do a similar thing with One Day Cricket. Um, I think you could easily sell that. Uh, you could. I, I think that would actually. I think it almost worked better in one day cricket to start with mm. T20s. If it was up to me personally, I would have one world T20 uh, or one T20 world cup every four years. And I'd have the Commonwealth games every um, uh, sorry, Commonwealth games and the Olympic games would be the other two major, major T20 events. Yeah. Uh, and if teams want to play friendlies to warm up for a series and everything, but I don't think, I don't think we necessarily need a T20 uh, league as such. Um, you know, I mean, Belgium are the number one ranked uh, football team in the world, aren't they? Uh, and we know they're not kind of not the number one ranked uh, football team. It's just that there isn't enough international football played to, to get the teams who should be number one up to the top, right? Mm. And I think that for T20, having a, a similar situation like that would be fine, but then have a proper qualification for those events uh, would be the only other thing I would say. Um, and, and there's absolutely no reason why, why we can't do that. So then that would be cool. We'd have these cool qualification, you know, we'd have a European qualification and Africa qualification, and, you know, Asia and, and you know, the Pacific now uh, with, with a few teams coming through there, uh, qualification, and I think that would be absolutely, I think that would be uh, fine for that. But uh, we can't continue to play, we can't continue to have these series where you have three tests, four ODIs and three T20s. It's just, there's, there's a, if there's a T20 World Cup coming up, you don't need to be playing one day cricket right now. Like you need to, you need to be planning these things better, but that's not how these systems work. It's an interesting analogy that you made there with, with the football and of course, European football championships on at the moment, Copper Americas on at the moment as well. I'm interested in, in unpacking franchise cricket's impact on the international game moving forward because with football, the pinnacle of football is definitely club fixtures. It's front franchise fixtures. Can yeah. cricket still hold on to international fixtures as being a pinnacle of the game 
when we have three IPL tournaments in the space of 12 months? I t- yes, because the World Cup is still going to mean something that the IPL would never mean. Now, whether in 50 years' time we still feel the same, but I, I've noticed there's a lot of football fans watching the, uh, the Euros at the moment and going, why do I have to watch Scotland? They're shit. Uh, this isn't as good as Spanish football or or um, French football or you know English football, and I get that, but they're still watching, mm. and they're still coming up with things. And you get a team like Denmark come through, um, and you know completely change the way we look at that. You, you can't have a team, you know. You Leicester's story in the Premier League, as incredible as it was, does not resonate in the same way that Iceland did, um, that New Zealand just has in the cricket right? Those sorts of things, or Sri Lanka in 1996 or Sri Lanka in 2014. And so there is something about national identity. I think we are going to have to understand that going forward, that the very best cricket will be played in the IPL, perhaps the blast as well, not the blast, the hundred, if they get it right, you know, so there will be times when the very best cricket will be played in domestic leagues. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they, that you don't want to win a world cup or an Olympic gold um, and those sorts of things. So I think that will certainly, that will certainly happen. But yeah, I think that international sport is, I remember Gareth Southgate talking about this recently. I've never had a chance to write about it, but it's really interesting. When he looked at, and I can't remember if it was just England or a bunch of the European teams, but when he looked at the under, their under 21 squads, like something like 30 or 40% of the players were qualified to play for two different countries. Mm. You know, you, you, we're talking about New Zealand here and we've talked about Neil Wagner. Uh, we can talk about BJ Watling, who was born in another country. Uh, Devin Conway, Glenn Phillips was born in another country. Look at the England team. Like Joffrey Archer's father is a tube driver, but he was brought up in Barbados. My kids, you know, I'm, I'm born and bred in Australia. My wife's family is from Sri Lanka. Our kids have been brought up in England. Who, who's to say to those children, like, which team? My, my son will literally support a different team uh, based on who is winning in every particular cricket game because he has so <laughs> many different allegiances, right? So national identity is changing. But while national identity is still a thing, I think international sport will still be a major part of it. But we might have to go, yeah, that's great. But, you know, that guy's made 300 for New Zealand, but will he ever make a run in the IPL? I think that's a fair thing, um, you know, going forward and looking at the way sport works. And, and look, we've we've kept you for for a long time here. It's been a, a, a really fun chat. The the one thing, uh, a bit off topic, but um, Baldy here is doing a, a little bit of work, uh, kind of analysing, uh, trying to put together a, a top one hundred uh, Test cricketers uh, of all time. And and you, as a as someone who's studied a lot of history of cricket, I'm, I'm really interested in in how you kind of analyse and um, how you compare people from different eras and, um, you, you know, the statistics, because you just mentioned before that seam bowling has changed by, you know, four runs. How do you, how do you manage all of that and, and players that you haven't even seen before? You know, one of the best things you can do is um, a runs above average metric where you can basically work out uh, how much better a player was than other players in their era. So, for instance, there are a lot of guys who scored a lot of runs in the 1930s, but it doesn't mean necessarily that they are a lot better than batters in the 1950s. It just means that... At that point, we hadn't really, other than body line, we didn't really bowl short. And batters had basically had, had worked out how to face everything except for short bowling at that point. Whereas in the 1950s, the same, you know, really talented players went up against people trying to knock their heads off. By the 1960s and 1970s, you know, it got even worse. Um, and then we, that ended up with the West Indies. So you have to compare people to the eras that they're in. How much better are they than the era that they're in? And that's what I, um, uh, a guy called Jonas um, 
you know, who I worked with quite a lot. He came up with the runs above average metric. That gives you a really good idea. Uh, all rounders, I think, find it the trickiest. So I remember talking to an England cricketer who said, there's no way that Garfield Sobers was better than Callis. And I was like, okay, um, Callis bowled 20 overs a game. And you basically had to pull him kicking and screaming to the crease. Uh, Sobers bowled 38 overs a game, which even for a bowler is front line. And he was also a front line batter. So his bowling average is higher than Callis's. I think one or two um, clicks higher, but you have to look at the usage percentage uh, there. What, you know, how many overs per game did these people have? I mean, Anton Devsic in T20 cricket is a perfect example of someone who has just incredible numbers, mm. but then you're like, well, they only ever bowl him when the pitch is ragging sideways. Um, and, and he's brilliant at that. Don't get me wrong. Um, but that's because he's a limited bowler. And so, you really do have to start to go through that. There's a there's a big period where I think Muhammad Azharuddin uh, didn't play didn't play Test cricket at home for about three or four years because India played like one Test. So how much better would his record have been if he'd spent four years stuffing his um, uh, his trunk with runs from India, right? And so it, a lot of these things are very hard. But if you have something like a runs above average metric, you at least then get an idea, I think, of. Uh, of how much better they were than other players in their era. And then you have to go back through. I mean, you know, uh, John Reed, the, the original John Reed. Uh, if, you, if you look at someone like him, I wrote an article about him um, uh, when he passed away. His numbers aren't that good, right? Uh, they don't pop off the screen. I think, you know, he had an average of, what, 30 with the bat and mid-30s with the ball. And, you know, well, that, that these days, that's like shifter than Shane Watson. And everyone thought Shane Watson was quite average, right? <laughs> but then you, under, you have to understand what he did. He started as a wicketkeeper, right? He then became uh, a seam bowler. He then became a spin bowler. And also, if you look at his batting, he was probably going to be a great number six batter. And because he was playing for New Zealand, he couldn't bat at number six. He had to bat at number four. And batting at number four in New Zealand is basically opening the batting because they, you know, no one has ever been able to open the batting when they open in New Zealand. Uh, so you've got, you've got this incredible talent who probably would average 40, 42 um, batting at number six and would have done, you know, Adam Gilchrist type things. And instead um, he's batting way too up, up the order. So comparing all these different plays is very tough. Uh, you really have to compare them to the era and they, uh, the players that they played with and against to get a better sense of how good they are. But there's no, there's no magic way of doing it. Um, you know, Aubrey Faulkner is the only cricketer we've ever had who had a batting average of uh, over 40 and a bowling average of under 30, all right? But doesn't make him the best um, all-rounder of all time. Although he, you know, he's certainly got a claim to be in the top five, I think, <laughs> which is pretty fair. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that doesn't make him the best of all time. The same way that, you know... Uh, um, Adam Voges, no one's sitting here saying Adam Voges should be on that list. Yeah? Do you know what I mean? We know. We, we know that we have to read things. Um, and it can be very tough. I don't envy you. I would never do that. It sounds like the worst thing ever, although I'll probably get asked to do it soon. I will do it, but I will never do it. <laughs> well, hopefully I can finish mine before you get it because if you do it, you'll do a far better job than me. But thank you for that advice, Jared. I really appreciate it. And it's good for no us problem. as well with uh, with because we're going to be uh, we're going to be bantering about it. So uh, it, it's it's very useful for us to be uh, now now we can actually uh, have an informed decision on uh, on Baldy's list. Just how wrong I am. I'm going to be able to make my stats a lot better as well. The pitches <laughs> I played on and the players I played against, you know, all going to come into that. Yeah, yeah look, no, it's uh, very important in club cricket to always work out how to make yourself look better. <laughs> Look, just thanks very much for your, for your time, Jared. It's been a, a really, a really enjoyable chat, and and uh, you know it's going to be a fascinating one for for the listeners, and, uh, and and nice to hear for 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 New Zealanders to hear an Aussie talk so nicely about uh, about our cricket side. 
Um, but I, I guess, um, and the answer, the answer to uh, you should get an Aussie on this podcast. I know, oh. I know. Imagine if we had one that talks so nicely about New Zealand all the time. <laughs> the uh, but look, I mean, the answer to this question is going to be everywhere. But before you go, you better tell the listeners where people can find you and, and your work, and and I guess anything you want to give a, a specific shout out to at the moment. Yeah, there's um, uh, just go to the YouTube page, uh, Jared Kimber on YouTube. There's uh, there's plenty of stuff there if you want to go through New Zealand stuff. But there's plenty of random stuff uh, about other players, uh, uh, some very famous players, and then some very random players that I get obsessed about. Uh, yeah, I it's a different kind of look at cricket, but um, uh, people seem to be liking it. So yeah, YouTube's probably the best place to go. Nice. Well, th- yeah, thanks very much, and uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your week. No worries. Cheers, guys. Cheers.